0: You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... Jesus said to her, "'Give me a drink,' for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, "'How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans.' And Jesus answered her, "'If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, "'Give me a drink,' you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water.' And the woman said to him, "'Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep.' And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And Jesus said to them, "'My food is to do the will of Him who sent me "'and to accomplish His work. "'Do you not say there are yet four months, "'then comes the harvest? "'Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes "'and see that the fields are white for harvest. "'Already the one who reaps is receiving wages "'and gathering fruit for eternal life, "'so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. "'For here the saying holds true, "'One sows and another reaps. "'I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor.'" Others have labored and you've entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father... Should we profit from this reading of this well-known story this morning, uh, we do require your your grace. We require you to teach us. We require you to open our hearts. We require you to instruct our wills, to instruct our minds. So, Father, we pray that you, by way of your Holy Spirit, would teach us this morning from your word, that you would speak to us from your word, that we would hear your voice as we study this passage. Oh, Father, change us and transform us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. We pray these things in his precious name. Amen and amen. Now, last week, we began our study of this great chapter, and we focused primarily on verses 1 through 3. And in verse 1, when Jesus learns, and again, this verse is speaking to Jesus' humanity, his humanity and His human nature uh, when He learned uh, that the Pharisees had found out He was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Uh, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God proper, doesn't learn anything. He knows all things. So this verse is uh, obviously appealing to Jesus and His human nature. Pretty tough to sort that out. We can only explain that to a certain degree, but we're going to see that again here. Uh, in our passage. So when Jesus learned that the Pharisees found out that he's making and baptizing more disciples than John, verse 3 tells us he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now, verse 4 is quite peculiar. If you look there, you'll see that he had to pass through Samaria. And that's an interesting verse because from from Judea to uh, Galilee, there really were three routes that Jesus could take. He could go west and up the seacoast. He could go east, cross to Jordan, and go up uh, along the Jordan River and then cross west again into Galilee. Or there was a third, and the, the, the quickest route would be straight through Samaria. Because you have Judea in the south, you have Samaria in between, you have Galilee up in the north. So if he's going to take a straight shot, he has to pass through uh, Samaria Now the text tells us he had to pass through Samaria. I think there 's more going on there than simple uh, geography, and we 'll return to that here in a few in just a little while. But look at verse five: He comes to a town of Samaria called Sychar, uh, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Now, some of you who are around for the study in Genesis, and it 's been some time ago, but when we were in genesis forty eight maybe you 'll recall that uh, Joseph learns that his father is getting very ill. So he packs up his sons, Ephraim and Nessa, and off they go to Jacob, his father. And his father blesses them. And in the course of chapter 48, uh, Jacob gives a plot of land to Joseph. Some of you may remember that uh, that detail, and that's what's in view in verse 5. This uh, area where Jesus is in is near that plot of land. We're told that Jacob's well was there, uh, the interesting thing about Jacob's well is uh, there's a site uh, that's been, you know, pretty maintained throughout the centuries as the site of this well, and it's it's there today. You can go and see it, and apparently it still works. There's still water flowing uh, in it. And so our story here is, here's Jesus, and you'll notice in verse 6, Jesus is wearied from his journey. Again, this is another appeal, this, uh, another appeal to his human nature. You know, Jesus, you, you know, you go back to John chapter 1 uh, and we, we learn that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. There is his divinity. And then in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and there is his humanity. And as we study the gospel, it's important that we, uh, that we keep that in mind. Jesus is one person, yet he has two natures. He has a human nature that is just like us in every way but one. Uh, he is without sin. And he has a divine nature where he is very God of very God. And here, this weariness, we see that Jesus, in terms of his humanity, experienced what we experience when we've been on an arduous journey. We experience fatigue. So the scene is uh, Jesus, he is, here he is at this well, we're told that it's the sixth hour in verse 6. That can be uh, uh, rendered two ways. We could use the Jewish uh, rendering, which would begin at about 6 a.m. in the morning, which would put this at about 12 o'clock and put us about noon. Uh, it also could be rendered in the Roman way, which would start at noon and render this about 6 p.m. early evening. I, I think the text is best thought of as happening at noon time. And the ESV translators, if some of you have an ESV open, there's a footnote there that says this is about noon. So it's uh, their perspective as well. But it's possible it could have been six in the evening, uh, but probably around noon in the very heat of the day. And we're told in verse 7 that a woman from Samaria comes out to draw water. And we're told in verse 8 that his disciples had gone away to buy food in the city. So here's the situation. I'm... I'm going to say it's probably noon in all likelihood. It's in the heat of the day. And there is Jesus, wearied, sitting by this well. And here comes this woman of Samaria. Now, she's probably not expecting to see anybody. uh, And she sees Jesus, uh, probably just wanting to go about her business, get the water, and go back uh, to her home. But Jesus breaks the awkwardness and breaks the silence in verse 7 by saying to her give me a drink give me a drink now this is an astonishing thing the woman is absolutely astonished if you look at verse 9 she says to him, how is it that you a Jew ask for a drink from me a woman of Samaria now this is astonishing on no less than two counts and in order for us to understand this there's some background that we need to, uh, to have at the, f- at the forefront here. Uh, Samaria has its history from one of the wicked kings of Israel, King Omri. And if you go back even further, if you go back to the days of Solomon, you know Solomon is succeeded by his son Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, what's he do? The very first thing he does is botches up the entire kingdom. The kingdom is actually split in two under Rehoboam. And you have the 10 tribes in the north they're led by a succession of wicked kings. And you have the two tribes in the south. And the north goes by Israel most of the time. The south goes by Judah. But in First Kings, I think right around chapter 16... We have a story of King Omri, and he buys a parcel of land. He buys a, a, a rather large parcel of land, and he names it Samaria, and it becomes the capital of the northern kingdom, so much so that sometimes when you're reading in the Bible and you come across Samaria, it could be referring to the capital. It could be re- uh, referring to the vicinity of the capital. It could be referring to the northern kingdom. And... Um, Israel is warned and warned and warned by the Lord. The Lord sends prophet after prophet to her to warn her of her apostasy. She doesn't heed. And according to the covenant that is made, uh, she, uh, God promised that if she turned her back on him, that she would be carried away into exile. And he makes good on his promise by raising up Assyria. And Assyria comes in and conquers Samaria in 722 B.C., carrying everybody off. And uh, their policy, their typical policy, is to, when they went into conquer lands, they would carry off a significant portion of the population, carry them elsewhere, and then they would import foreign folks into those areas. That was one of the ways that they thought they could um, keep control of the area, keep the area peaceful. And so this is what we have happening in, in uh, Israel. A significant portion of the Jews are carried away, and uh, people from other nations are, are brought in. And initially, if you're familiar with the history, you'll recall that uh, initially they began to get devoured by by wild beasts. This comes in around Second Kings, probably, I don't know, uh, 15, 16, 17 in there somewhere. They're, they're uh, devoured by uh, these wild beasts and the Assyrians, they... They, the word gets back to them, and they surmise this: the reason they 're getting devoured by these wild animals is because we 've carried off all of their priests, and they're, they don 't know how to appease the God of that land. so the Assyrians sent a priest back to, uh, to Judea, or back to uh, Samaria, if you will, to teach people uh, the ways of the Lord, and what comes out of it is this admixture of of uh, numerous pagan religions mixed with kind of a corrupt form of Judaism is what this amounts to. And um, the people, the the Jewish people that were left behind, uh, finally end up intermarrying with some of the foreign uh, folks that come in. And to the Orthodox Jew, what happens is they begin to look disdainfully upon the Samaritans. They see the Samaritans as uh, heathens, as pagans, as a, a mixed breed, if you will. We have a lot of racism that's taking place. Uh, between uh, the Jews and the Samaritans, so much so that they absolutely despise each other. And the Samaritans didn't even, uh, you know, the Samaritan Bible wasn't uh, an Old Testament as we would have it. Uh, Samaritans uh, only had the first five books. That's all they believed was uh, in the canon of Scripture. And they rewrote some of the history. And they even, I've never personally compared a Samaritan Bible to uh, what we have in our Uh, our Old Testament in the first five books. Uh, But scholars tell us that there's a number of changes made. So they have this corrupt... The the Orthodox Jews see the Samaritan as uh, a corrupt people, a corrupt worship, a corrupt Bible, corrupt everything. And by the time of Jesus, this animosity increased to the point that some Jews believe that if you even set foot in that land, just by putting your foot down on the dirt, You could defile yourself. And there were many Jews who would go all the way around. If they wanted to go to Galilee, they'd go all the way around. They'd either go up the west coast or they'd go up the east side of the Jordan just to avoid the area. Um, Others would go through uh, Samaria, but they wouldn't eat anything there uh, for the fear of being defiled. So you have this tension, if you will, between the Samaritan people and the Jewish people going on. But there's a second front going on here. You notice what she says. In verse 9, she says, how is it that you a Jew? She can clearly see that Jesus is a Jew because of the way he's dressed. And undoubtedly, she could clearly see that he's a rabbi by the way that he is dressed. And she's, first of all, astonished that he's sitting there. Second, she's astonished that he's speaking to a Samaritan, asking for a drink. And he doesn't have a cup. He doesn't have a bucket. What's he going to drink? Is he actually going to share a vessel? And compounding it even further, she's a she. Jewish rabbis didn't speak to women. That's just something they didn't do. So he breaks the silence and says to her, give me a drink. And she says, how in the world is it that you're asking me for a drink? My guess is this is very uncomfortable for her. I can't imagine. My guess is things got uncomfortable for her as soon as she saw that somebody was there. Why would she be coming out at noon? Why would she be coming? She's avoiding people is why she's coming out at noon. This is not the normal time when women would come out and get water. You're not going to do that in the heat of the day if you got your choice. Now, if this was 6 p.m., okay, maybe not. but I think, I think the best interpretation of this, this is happening at noon in the heat of the day. And Jesus answers her. If you look at verse 10, Jesus answered and He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now what does that mean? Living Water. Now, as I've said many times, and Lord willing, I'll say many more times, the Scriptures are their best interpreter, aren't they? How do we interpret Scripture? With Scripture. And there's probably little doubt that Jesus has in mind Jeremiah chapter 2. And if you can find Jeremiah chapter 2 kind of quickly, I invite you to do it. If, If you're not familiar with where Jeremiah is, I think it'd be best just to sit and listen to me read the passage to you. I don't want you to get distracted looking for Jeremiah and miss what's going on here in Jeremiah 2. And you probably will recognize the passage. Jeremiah 2 verse 13 is a somewhat uh, popular passage out of Jeremiah's prophecy. And in Jeremiah 2 verse 13, the Lord is indicting His people. He's indicting them. And He says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of what? Living waters. And they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, first thing that we observe about this is the Lord is referring to himself figuratively as a fountain of living water. Water. And secondly, they have scorned this fountain of living water. They have forsaken the fountain of living water in favor of cisterns that they've manufactured themselves. Now, what is going on there? What is going on there is apostasy. And it it goes back to what I told several of you last week that last week's message was foundational in many ways because it goes back to this custom man-made religion that all believers manufacture unbelief causes us to manufacture our own custom-made religion it takes on all kinds of different shapes and forms but at the end of the day it is undergirded by unbelief so they have forsaken the true fountain and made and hewn out cisterns if you will see the 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 language there is, is so graphic isn't it you guys have forsaken, he's saying you have forsaken the living God for these false gods, false idols, false gods, false systems, false religion, if you will. And now if we, if we take that and we go back to chapter 4 and we look at what Jesus is saying in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you what? Living water. Now, what is Jesus talking about? Jesus is talking about this. He is saying that if she would ask, he would give her himself. He would give her himself, and that would include all of his graces, And we've been studying the Trinity on Wednesday nights. We could say that would include all three persons of the Trinity, the Father. Through the Son, you can have a relationship with the Father. What is the Son in process of doing as they communicate? He's in the process of accomplishing a salvation that is going to be freely offered to all who will take it by faith. And that will put her in a right relationship with the Father. And it will be made possible... By the Holy Spirit, or by by the Son, and applied by the Holy Spirit. So you see, the whole Triune God and all of His graces and everything that encompasses eternal life and God is being is 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 on the table. If you'd have known who it was you were talking to, you'd have asked Him for a drink, and He would have given you living water. Now, does she understand? No, she doesn't understand. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you don't have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. You see, she doesn't understand. She doesn't understand. Does Jesus walk away from her? No. She asks him, where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Her Bible has Genesis in it. She knows the story. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You know, spring of water welling up to eternal life. Does she understand now? No. Verse 15, she said, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. She sees it as a a complete substitute to the water that's in the well. Jesus said to her, call your husband and come here, excuse me, Um, go go get your husband, Um, uh uh-oh, well you see, I, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, you're right, verse 17, and saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. Again, I want to point out, I don't think this is a comfortable experience for her. It's certainly not a comfortable experience right now. Because if this is noon, and I think it is noon, what is she doing at the well at noon? She's trying to avoid the shame and the scorn of the fact that she's living with her boyfriend if we might put it into contemporary terms. Is this comfortable for her? No. The woman said to him, verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. How else could he? You know, here's the stranger she's never met before, and he knows all these details about her. And that's really the way the Lord works, isn't it? When you come into his presence, you, and in fact, if you're in the word, and you come into his presence, and if God's speaking to you through his word, you suddenly realize, I'm in the presence of someone who knows me better than myself. That's what's happening to her. That is what's happening to her. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Yeah, the Samaritans set up their own place of worship on Gerizim. They had their own place of worship. It wasn't in Jerusalem where God had ordained the worship take place. They set up their own worship place up in Gerizim. And Jesus said to her, woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. Now see, Jesus is acknowledging that they're off. He's acknowledging that they're off with their worship with that statement. And he goes on to say, we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. And this sets us up for verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, we might use this phrase all the time, worship in spirit and truth, worship in spirit and truth. But what does it mean? What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? Well, let's think about the context. Chapter 4 is between chapter 3 and 5, and someone will say, well, Rick, that was the most brilliant thing you said this morning. Thank you. <laughs> You'll find 4 right between 3 and 5, how about that? we're really on a roll here uh, but if you look at chapter 3 and Jesus and we we should we should study the 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 scene in chapter 4 with the scene in chapter 3 in mind because they're being compared to each other no doubt in chapter 3 we have a man named Nicodemus coming out to see coming out to see Jesus and he couldn't be any more uh, opposite than the woman of Samaria could he I mean here's a guy and you know, he's the great teacher of Israel. He's the religious guy. He's the professor of divinity, if you will. He's wearing the fancy suits and the fancy garbs. He's driving the fancy cars, and everyone's praising him because he's so holy, and, and uh, he's hearing about Jesus. He's trying to figure out Jesus, and he realizes his whole life is a hoax. He realizes that many people think that he has something on the outside, that he is not on the inside, and undoubtedly that's what's on his mind as he comes to see Jesus. And there's no question recorded for us. I've been over this a couple of times. I think the point is Jesus can read the hearts, and Nicodemus doesn't need to ask his question because Jesus, in terms of his divinity, knows his heart completely. And what question would he ask? Oh, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, listen, you need to be born again. You need to be born from above And unless you're born from above, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. And in verse 5, he says, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot see the kingdom of God. You're on the outside of the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus has a problem. He's a very religious man with a problem. On the outside, he appears to be angelic. But on the inside, he's just as lost as this woman in Samaria. They're both apart from Christ. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you need this inward transformation that can only take place by way of the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 4, Jesus is telling the woman, at do well. The true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. What is it to worship in spirit? To worship in spirit is to worship from the heart and from a heart that has been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. But notice it's not you're just to worship in spirit, you're to worship in spirit and truth. Now what is the truth part all about? Well, again, the context. Let's look at the context. Go back to chapter 1 and verse 17. In verse 17 there, we're told that the law was given through Moses. Grace and what came through Jesus Christ? Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And famously in John 14, 6, Jesus says himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Right? Jesus is the truth. Now, where do we learn about Jesus? Well, we're learning about Jesus right now, and what are we doing? We're studying the Word. It is in the Word that we learn about Jesus. Where else can we learn about Jesus? And the interesting thing about the Word is, Jesus himself in Luke 24 tells us, that the Word centers on him. And putting that together and saying, well, you know, yeah, and that sounds a little bit like John 1, doesn't it? Yeah, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This Word is truth. His Word is truth. So if we're going to worship the Lord and be true worshipers of the Lord, we have to worship the Lord with a heart that has been transformed by the Holy Spirit and is informed by the truth, or the Word of God, if you will, which centers on Christ. Does that make sense? I know it's a mouthful. Let me go through it again. If we are to worship in spirit and truth, then we are going to worship from a heart that has been transformed by the Holy Spirit. And we will be informed, our worship will be informed by the Word of God. This Word centers on Christ. Let's tease us a little bit before we move on. Let's tease us a little bit. See, This is heart worship plus truth, right? It's not heart worship without truth. Do we have heart worship today without truth? Oh, boy, you better believe it. we got it going on a mass scale, actually. It seems that more and more people are falling prey to that all the time, where there's all this excitement, and it's supposed to be worship. I'm going I'm to tell you, I don't believe much of that is worship at all. I don't believe much of that is worship because as people describe the sensation and they describe the feelings and they describe all this stuff that they're... I can tell you right now as a heathen, I experienced that at an Eric Clapton concert back in 1996, and I don't think it was the Holy Spirit. Goosebumps and awe and sensation. Why is everybody... Always on sensational things. Always about the sensational. Could it be that we're watching too much reality TV? Could that be it? Let's not think that all this reality TV is not finding its way into the church. How much of life really is lived in the sensation? Is that the way life is? Do we live on on these sensational highs all the time? Actually, most of life is common and ordinary, isn't it? If God is only working in the sensational times, then how often is God working? Let's be honest. I submit to you, God's working all the time. Jesus himself says, Lord, my Father's working and now I'm working. They're working all the time. Guess what? The Lord works often in the common ordinary days when you just wake up in the morning, you get your Bible out, you get your cup of coffee, and you sit on the back porch. God is working. Why do we have to... Why, why do we have to drum up all this sensation and all this fanfare and all this stuff? It's because of unbelief. That's why. Because we don't believe the resurrection is so sensational. Because we do not believe that the ascension is so sensational. Because we don't believe that the incarnation is so sensational. You know, if you start, to, you start immersing your mind and your heart in that, you're not going to have to connive anything. You won't have to connive anything. That the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Where do we learn that? We learn that in the Word. You can't learn that apart from the Lord, and you're certainly not going to learn that bouncing and jumping up around the place. That's not what a worship service is, jumping and bouncing around. Probably 10 years ago, I had a man that was coming here for a little while, for a short period of time. After one of the services right here in the hallway, he said to me, hey, I got a question for you. I'm like, okay, I can say this. He doesn't live around here anymore. I said, what's your question? He said to me, how come you guys never, how come you guys never run around? <laughs> I didn't want to laugh because he was so serious, but I'm like, first of all, I was like, What? Why aren't you, like, running, ar- running around? I-, I said to him, I said, God's a God of order. That's about all. I, I, actually, I was so, actually so caught off guard that he was asking me that question. I've never been asked that question before. We need heart worship for sure, but not a heart worship that's devoid of the truth. We need heart worship plus truth. We need the heart and the word. Now, let's do a flip side of this. Can we be so caught up in the word that there's no heart? Is it possible? Yep. Is it common? Yep. I mean, there's certain, there's certain folks among us that get, we can actually get, we can fall in love with Doctrines. We can fall in love with theology. We can fall in love with all of these all of these patterns that we see in the Word of God, and we can fall in love with that and, and discover that our hearts are apart from Christ. So there's, there's truth, but there's no heart. That's why it's important that we see when we look at verse 23, a little bit of grammar here is very, very important. See, this is why it's so important to be studying the Word. Jesus says to her, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in, you see the word, in? This word in is so important. This word in is governing both spirit and truth. It's governing both of those words, spirit and truth, spirit and truth, heart, word, heart, word. It's important that we put both of these together. Heart without truth is... is a, is corrupt truth without heart is corrupt. Worship in spirit and in truth. We worship from a heart that's transformed by the Holy Spirit and is informed by the Word of God. When it when the psalmist says, "Oh, how I love your law," the reason the psalmist loves the law is because it's God's law. Does that make sense? I don't think we can emphasize that too much. And verse twenty four. Jesus, continuing to talk to her, says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Look at verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I think in that moment of time, her discomfort was transformed into awe. Awe. She's face to face with the Messiah. Just then, verse 27, disciples come back. They marveled that he's talking with a woman because they just don't do that. But no one asked him any questions. Verse 28, notice what the woman does. She's changed. She's a changed woman. Someone said, well, how can you say that she's a changed woman? Look what she does. She leaves her water jar and she goes back into the town, the town that she's been avoiding. And she says, come see a man, verse 29, who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they believed her they didn't write her off as, you know, oh, there's that, that adulteress from the other side of the tracks. They didn't write her off. They're like, goodness, something has happened to her. What has happened to her? They believe her. And they, they come out. They went out of the town, verse 30, and they were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples show up. And they're encouraging him, you know, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Hold on to that verse. We're going to look at that verse here in just a moment. But he says, Do not say that there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap, for that which you do not labor, others have labored and you've entered into their labor. And what is the result? Many Samaritans come out. They come out and they believed in him in verse 39 because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. She had a testimony that was believable because it was from the heart, a transformed heart. Now, in verse 40, the Samaritans came to him and asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Very important concept right there in those verses, easy to miss. And the concept is this. If you're ministering and you're, act, act, you're actively ministering to people, people will begin to respect you, and they may start believing because they respect you. Don't stop right there. You've got to lead them into the word so that they come to own the word for themselves. Because while they're still respecting you, that's a good start, but they're vulnerable. They're very vulnerable until they're in the word and believing the word because they've seen for themselves from the word. We've got to get people in the world, in the word. And to do that, we're going to have to get them to quit jumping around for a little while to get into the Word. I really believe this is really something we're going to need to go after because it seems that more and more of this is taking place. And what does it create? It creates nothing but chaos, and it leaves people vulnerable. They, they become unstable. They begin believing all kinds of crazy doctrines. They fall, if they fall prey to anything because they're never studying anything. So we need to we need to sit people down. We need to share them with the word. But they can't just believe because we said so. We need to get them into the word so that they believe because they've seen for themselves. They've seen for themselves. And now they own. They own this word. So this morning, I don't want you to believe this stuff because I'm saying so. I want you to go home and look in the text and believe it because the word says so. Study the text for yourself until you own it. Now, let's put all this together, and I'll wrap this up as a close. It's a large text. Let's put it together. What's the main point of this story? Well, some of them say, well, the main point thing, that's what you keep doing when you keep asking us to go to John chapter 20, right? Glad you brought that up. Let's look at John chapter 20. John 20, verse 31. In verse 31, we get the purpose of the gospel of John, don't we? John says he is writing these things so that we may believe, chapter 20, verse 31, that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So this is the overarching purpose of John's gospel, namely that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that through believing we would have life in His name. That's the overall purpose. So now let's ask a second question. How is John chapter 4 contributing to that overall purpose? Well, I think there's two answers. Our first answer would be in verse 26, John 4, 26. Jesus does something that he doesn't usually do. He looks at this woman and says, I am the Messiah. He doesn't usually do that. So there John is showing that Jesus is the Christ, But I think we can be more specific if we back up to verse 23. I think verse 23 is key here, where Jesus says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now look what comes after that. I haven't commented on that yet, but look at this. For the Father is what? seeking. That's the title of this message. The Father is seeking. What is the Father seeking? Or it should say, who is the Father seeking? He's seeking those who will worship in spirit and truth. That's what this is contributing, especially when we compare it to Nicodemus. Nicodemus has got his man-made traditions and custom-made religion and all that. And here, the Samaritan, Jesus said, listen, the Father is seeking people who will worship him in spirit and truth. Jesus had to hightail it out of Judea. Why? Because he's gaining popularity and they didn't like it. And I think this is meant to be a sting because here he is now in this despised Samaria, in this despised place that you could be defiled simply by putting your foot in, and yet they're inviting Jesus to stay. ruh They're inviting Jesus to stay. Why? Because the heart has been transformed. And it's brought the walls down. The Lord's breaking down the walls. Verse 9, the Samaritan says, how is it that you, a Jew, seek a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? It's because the Father is seeking true worshipers, and you're first on the list. And that's why verse 4 said he had to pass through Samaria. Why did he have to pass through Samaria? Because the Father is looking for particular individual people to transform them into worshipers who will worship in spirit and truth. And here's this woman. Her life is a mess. Her life is a wreck. She is not living in a good way. And she's coming to the well, and it's a normal day. And there is the Father in Christ Jesus saying, give me a drink, because I'm about to transform you into a true worshiper of the Father. I think many of us could say, you know, that sounds really familiar. That kind of sounds like my own personal life. I wasn't headed to a well, but nevertheless, the Father found me in Christ Jesus, and he transformed me. Isn't that a wonderful story? See, the story is not... It's a, the Samaritan woman plays a role in the story, but she's not the overarching. You know, if, if the title of this message was the story of the Samaritan woman, oh, well, we better be careful with that because that's is that chiefly and principally what this story is about, the Samaritan woman and her story? That's part of it. No, no, no. no. It's about the Father who seeks true worshipers. He seeks true worshipers and he gives himself to them and the Lord calls them out of sin. Verse 16, how oh, we want to skip verse 16. Oh, verse 16 is so uncomfortable. Jesus says to her, call your husband and come here. I spoke last week with an example of a man who told me he had been baptized, was so excited to tell me he had been baptized. and and was looking for a church and wanting to grow in his faith and I shared with you how I ministered. I think it was last week, wasn't it? I shared that story. And how I would ministered him for a couple of months only to discover that he's been, that he's living with his girlfriend. Anybody think to bring that up? I mean, are we baptizing people while they're Living with their girlfriend. I don't fault him for living with his girlfriend. I don't fa- Listen, we're living in sin before God comes to us. That sin can take on all kind of forms, whether it's, whether it's sex, sexual sin, whether it, it could be any kind of sin. We have, no, we have no business being baptized until we're being called out of that sin. You see, we want to skip verse 16. And even now as I talk, I have no doubt that there are pulpits all over the place that are preaching to unbelievers, telling them all the benefits are in Christ Jesus, without ever, ever challenging them to, to forsake sin. Because we, we want to skip that part. We, it, it's often said, well, we don't want to run any way, anyone away. I don't believe that for a minute. I think that's selfish. Selfish. It's really uncomfortable telling a young man, listen, you have to quit sleeping with your girlfriend. If you're going to be a disciple of Christ, you're going to have to turn from this way. Or telling a young woman, listen, you're going to have to quit doing these things. We We can't quit doing it in our own strength. We do this in the strength that the Lord gives us, but we can't skip verse 16, can we? Jesus doesn't do it. He doesn't skip verse 17 or verse 18. You've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. You see, until there's some conviction of sin, there's not going to be much of a need for a Savior, is there? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory and we each have our list. And it would be a most uncomfortable thing if we went one by one and stood up here and said, Hi, my name is Rick and this is what I've done. And then Troy would be next. <laughs> I think they're sounding like they want you to come next, Troy. <laughs> I just wanted to lighten it up a little bit. Troy can do whatever he wants with me after the service. He, he's kind and he's gentle. so. But do you see I understand what I'm saying? We have to have those difficult conversations or... What is going to be produced will not be worshipers who are worshiping in spirit and truth. That won't happen. And that's why so much of the church, when you look at so much of the church, what does it appear to be? It appears to be a gathering. It appears to be a lot of activity. It appears to be a lot of all kinds of stuff. But not a lot of true Christianity. Not a lot of that. True Christianity is radical. It's radical. Because it takes a person who is running this way and transforms them on the inside so that they want to run that way. And you can't do that without being challenged in your sin. We know what we are on the inside. We are experts at hiding it. Jesus knew what this woman was on the inside. But look what he says to her in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked, and he would have given you living water. So what are we going to do? We ask. And what does he give us? Himself. 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 Someone might be saying, You know, I want to ask, but I don't feel like asking. Then ask Him to change that feeling. Lord, change this feeling. Because without Him, where are we? We're lost for eternity. Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Father. We thank you and praise you for this story. We thank you and praise you, O oh, Father, for uh, your goodness and your grace. And we thank you and praise you, O oh, Lord, that you have given us this story, that you have given us this encounter, and that through it, Lord, you have taught us all these things. And, O oh, Lord, we thank you as we look and as we see, we see the very heart of God in Christ Jesus, that you are seeking true worshipers, who will worship you in spirit and in truth. And, oh, Father, that is not what we were doing when you found us, but you've come to us and you've transformed us and given us hearts. They're transformed by the Holy Spirit. And, oh, Father, you've given us a taste for your word. And week in and week out, Father, we study your word. We learn about you. And it increases our capacity to worship you and to follow you. And, oh, Lord, we, we adore you. We, we adore you. And we thank you. And, oh, Father, we pray for those who are yet lost, whose eyes have yet to be opened, whose hearts are yet to be changed. Do this magnificent work, Father, that, they, that our joy may be complete, that they would see you as we see you as well. Oh, Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.